Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with whatever, with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as sacrifice for sins are burnt up outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore... Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we come to this passion uh, passage of scripture, we uh, ought to be reminded of some things that we have already seen. One is that Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. Christianity is not a lone wolf walk. You don't do this by yourself. You have been given a community, um, whether you want it or not. It's one of those things you don't get to choose your family. That just kind of happens. So sometimes you're in a community of faith and everybody loves each other and it's awesome. And then sometimes you're in a community of faith and you got uncle so-and-so over there. We love him. And that's the most you can say. 
That's not you guys. Just if anybody's self-conscious. Oh, it does. If anybody, I'm the uncle. So many Christians think that that Christianity is a singular religion, that it's something you do by yourself, and they're they're wrong. And God goes to great lengths to show them. And that's not what Christianity is. It is it is a following of Christ together. I, I equated it a long time ago as if there's a big mass of people moving in the same direction. It's okay, you can come in. Every year when the gun show happens, people stick their head in and they've always got a gun. <laughs> and you're like, you, yeah. um, I might interrupt a couple more times if somebody comes in. Yeah. Um, so... Many Christians believe that this is a singular religion, but it's not. It's it's a it's a family that you have joined into, and you get a family of faith, and you don't get to choose them, and they're not people you like. I didn't choose my brother; he's just born to my mom and dad, and so he's family. I love him, but sometimes I love him. So. Here, as we come to this passage, I wanted to remind you of that. I also wanted to remind you that the power to accomplish these exhortations, that's what they are, they're exhortations, which is a command based on a previously established fact. That's what an exhortation is. So, as we come to these exhortations, I want to remind you that there's been 11 chapters prior to 12, 11 chapters, that have set up the fact that the reason you're able to do this is because Jesus Christ is better. He is better than every other system, every other work, every other try, every other attempt. He is better than all the white-knuckle religion you can get. Surrender to Him is better. And I want to remind you that that's why you have the power to obey the words of Christ. That's why you have the power to do this next passage. So, let's dive in. We are designed for community in echo of God's triune nature. You are designed for community in the echo of God's triune nature. You are designed to overflow with love the way God does when he creates. God sees that the world, he, he creates the world because not because he's bored, not because he needed some help, Not because he needed somebody to do something. Not because he was selfish and wanted worship. Not because of those things. He creates the world because he is the supreme of all things. And so great is his nature. That out of the overflow of love for his nature. Comes creation. Out of the overflow of love for himself. Father looks at the Son, who looks at the Spirit, who looks, at, and they, they're together, and they say, let us make man in our image, let him take dominion over the earth, let him spread over the whole world. This is the love of God, that the whole world would see it, because he's that magnificent. He's that amazing. You were designed for community and echo of that, of that praise. You were designed distinct an individual within the community. Uncle so-and-so's exist for a reason. You were designed that way 
for a reason, distinct and yet in community together with the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's much to be said about this. There's much to be said about this, and we will not cover all of it. But maybe in glory we'll see it all. So, let's dive right in. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Pause. Let brotherly love continue. The author of Hebrews is going to riff off the word phileo here for a little bit. It's the word love, and it's the familial love, right? This is the C.S. Lewis describes it as a familial love. There's more to it. It's an affectionate, uh, personal, family love. It's that love that you haven't seen somebody for a while, and you see them, and you're overcome, and you hug them. It's affectionate. It's, it's that kind of love. So let brotherly love continue. Let this brotherly love, this familial love, brothers and sisters, continue. Familial love, by the way, this phileo love, extends beyond the moment. This kind of love is the type of love that I have for my brothers. I have two brothers, for those of you who don't know, and a sister. And my two brothers are great. I love them to death. One of them I am extremely close to. We talk weekly. The other one I talk to once a month, maybe. But when we see each other, that's my brother. And I love him. And sometimes I love him. But there's always love for him. Let this love continue. Let it continue or let it be persistent and constant. Familial love like this defines Christianity. I don't know if you've ever... um, called somebody on the phone and prayed for them that you've never met. I do it all the time. Call for call somebody on the phone that I've never met and I I, I have had the privilege it's awkward because I planned this sermon before this guy was here. Um, he's sitting over there. I prayed for him on the phone. Um, I, I've had the privilege of them showing up occasionally in my life. And I have to tell you that I recognize a Christian and I get excited and my heart kind of starts to race and leap. And I go, that's a brother. That's family. That's my family. And I get excited and, I, and, and it, it rises because let brotherly love continue. We have a love that is founded on a God who is eternal and transcends our physical space. It's incredible. And I remember when I went to a specific conference where there was a man who I have learned a great deal from his books and his presence. And I went to this conference and I sat down. I was eating lunch at this conference and he sat down across from me. And I looked up and I went, (gasps) It's him! And we talked. For good hour, and he blew my mind with the stuff he was talking about. Just, but more than the stuff that came out of his mouth, when I sat down across from that godly man who was a believer in Christ Jesus, who I had studied under through his books and who I had sat with through his books, I realized that we were connected 
in the family of faith. And there was no hierarchy. He wasn't a superhero. As he put it, he's a hamburger and cheese guy. He's a hamburger and cheese guy. And he's just a normal guy. And we sat across from each other and we rejoiced and worshipped the Lord and spoke of the things of God. And it was wonderful. And why was it wonderful? Because we have a connection with Christians that transcends this world. Let brotherly love continue. That ought to continue in you to each other. Let brotherly love continue. Familial love like this defines the Christian. The next statement here is, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. On my porch, there's a sign that says, uh, come, come and, does it come and stay? Come and sit and chat. Something like that. Come have a seat, sit down, come sit on my porch, come and stay and chat. Something like that. I don't even remember what it says, but it's on, it's on the porch. So anybody who comes up, sees it. This week, I was, I was at my house with my kids running around inside. Those of you who had kids know what I'm talking about. And I went to the door and there was a salesman there and he pointed at the sign and said, you really mean that? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and he went, well, you mind if I take advantage of it? And he's thinking he's going to make a sale. And I'm thinking, this means I've got 30 minutes to share the gospel with you before you get annoyed and run off. And he said... He said, you mind if I sit down and take advantage of it? I said, are you sure you want to? And he said, yeah. And he sat down. And I went, all right, let's do this. And I sat down next to him. And we began a gospel conversation. I started the conversation, just to be fair, so you all know how to practice hospitality. It's always honest. I sat down with him and I said, okay. Um, I'm not going to buy anything or talk about your sales now. There's something much more I'm going to talk about. Much more important. And if at any point you get frustrated with me, I understand what it's like to be a salesman. You get frustrated and you need to leave. Hey, just stand up and say thank you and walk off. We're good. Um, no hard feelings. I'm good. And he sat down and we began a gospel conversation that started for about 30, lasted for about 30 minutes until he finally realized I was serious. I asked him to repent and believe in Jesus probably about eight, eight, nine times during the course of that conversation. And he finally stood up and said, hey, man, thank you. I got to get back to the grind. And I was like, I get, I get it, man. I get it. If you want to talk some more, come back. And, uh, and he stood up and he left. That's hospitality. That you would have somebody sit. And in your inconvenience, you would rejoice in the gospel. And present the, that's hospitality. That's what it is. That people come into your home, into your space, and they violate your space. And it's frustrating and exhausting. But look at what the scripture says. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And I'm sure he's thinking about Abraham, the oaks of Mamre, when the Lord comes. And Lot, who entertains an angel in his home, I'm sure he's thinking about those stories. I'm also sure he's thinking about the times when people knock on your door and go, hey, can I have a seat because you got this sign up here and you let them sit down. And I'm also thinking about the time, I'm sure he's also thinking about the time when people come to your house and they go, I haven't had dinner today. And you let them in. We have a standing rule at my house 
for young men and young women in the neighborhood that if they haven't eaten, they can show up at dinner, no questions asked. And it's awkward because they'll show up at dinner and we can't ask questions. So they show up and they go, hey, all right, come on in. And then we have to set another seat and my son's kicking their chair. It's great. Um, So show hospitality. We are somewhere we are to be somewhere between a hospital that provides refreshment and a hotel that that provides relaxation. We are to be between healing and rest hospitality. We are to be healing and bringing rest to the watching world. For some have entertained angels unaware. The third exhortation here is to remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. That let brotherly love continue extends to this verse. We remember those in prison because they are family. Because they are family. And I don't know how often you connect. This is just a side application for you. I don't know how often you connect with the persecuted church. Um, If you never connect with the persecuted church, let me know. I've got some apps you can put on your phone that you can put in your hand that you can pray for the persecuted church. There are several of them. And you can be reminded that this world is not your friend. And that you are on the side of a kingdom that exists beyond this place. And you can remember those who are in prison as though you were there with them. You are to remember them as though you are with them. As though you are with them. And why? Because you are. That's why. Why do you remember this? Because you are with them. You're part of the body. If they hurt, you hurt. If they hurt, Christ is not exalted. That should bring mourning to our souls. Them in prison, God will surely take their misfortune and their suffering, our misfortune and our suffering, and use it for his glory. When sovereignty and suffering are married, that's when we understand the gospel at best. But we must work to strive to remember them. So we've got a prayer guide in the back for those of you who pray weekly. It's a seven-day prayer guide. You can take it, read it, write it, write in it, whatever. Um, it will help guide you through praying for the church and for uh, the the world, for the um, for the the suffering, the martyrs, and the, the people who are struggling. It will connect you with some of those things, and you you can pray. Through those, it's a valuable tool. I would urge you to get it if you haven't ever picked one up before. Um, But remember those who are in prison. Now for Paul, this was a much more real thing for Paul and for the writer of the book of Hebrews and for uh, John the Apostle and for Peter and for these men in the first century of Christianity. This was a very real thing. They knew the people in prison. They were their friends. They were their brothers indeed. The author of Hebrews seems to have direct contact with people who are in prison. And he's writing a letter to these people, these Hebrews, from a position where he is directly contacting somebody who's in prison. 
So here in this moment, we want to strive to be like this, this brother. And we want to strive to connect our spirit, our heart with those who are in prison by kneeling before the Father and praying for them. So I know it's awkward, but in the middle of this sermon, we're going to do that right now. We're just going to stop for a moment and pray for the persecuted church. Right now, there are multiple pastors in China who are in prison who have been there for years. There are pastors in Pakistan who, in this moment, are preaching in houses where they have all the windows closed and doors shut so nobody sees because if somebody sees, they're dead. We have brothers and sisters with Gospel for Asia who are working in the field right now. So let's just take a moment. I'm going to give you a a second of silence to pray for them. Remember that when we pray, we are doing warfare. Do not expect that the adversary will let you shoot at him without firing back. So in this moment, focus. Let's go to war for a minute. Then we'll get back to study. Lord, we pray for the body of Christ in this moment that you would be with them and protect them. Help them hear the gospel and be reminded of your kingdom. Help them know your glorious presence in this moment where they are struggling. Father, we pray your protection over them. But more than just your protection, Lord, we pray victory that people would see them. And come to know you. That you would use their struggles and their suffering for your glory and your name. Lord, help us remember. Amen. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, this is a weird verse. I don't know if you've ever done any Greek study, but this is a a strange verse. And here's why. The only verb that's in this verse is God will judge. The others aren't verbs. They're statements. They're they're statements. It's marriage is honored. That's the statement. Marriage is honored. The marriage bed is undefiled. And it's, it's a direct article there. So it's the marriage is honored. The marriage bed is undefiled. So as we, as we ponder what God is speaking through his word, as we think about this and as we think thoroughly through it, there's, there's something that we need to recognize. That these are statements, not exhortations. You don't get to debate this. This is just the truth. And then we have a question. So we we can take this one of two ways. We can either say the marriage, so this is referring to a specific one, or we can take it to mean, in general, your marriage, my marriage, the marriage, the specific, a marriage. We can take it that way. I think we're going to have fun because we're going to do both. It'll be interesting. So first, 
Marriage is held in high honor. This might be a response to first century issues of people not wanting to be married, people wanting to live together and not wanting to be married, not thinking that marriage is something that they need to venerate or exalt, that marriage is just kind of a legal contract. Let's just, like, we can just live together and that'll be the same thing. Right? It's a first century problem. It's funny how problems don't change. Right? Um, I can't tell you how often I deal with people who say, well, we're just going to be, we're just going to live together and, you know, we're not going to worry about the whole marriage contract thing. And, and then you look at them and you go, yeah, need to. And it's really awkward and very difficult, especially if they don't know Jesus. So for the ones who, just a pro tip for you, if you are counseling with people who don't know Jesus, you start by counseling them to trust in Christ. And if they won't, you continue to counsel them to trust in Christ. And if they won't, you continue to counsel them to trust in Christ. You see a pattern? Um, so you just keep that up. So we here in this passage see marriage is honorable and the marriage bed is undefiled. These are two statements of fact about what marriage is. That marriage is undefiled and that it's honorable. So this could be a response from the author saying, this is important. Marriage is not to be just cast aside or or, or thrown off or, or given a secondary issue. It is it, it it matters. It's important. So marriage is honorable and marriage bed is undefiled. These are two things that are uh, true. Now, so that's marriage, specifically a marriage or the marriage, right? And then then you've got this other idea that there's a specific marriage he's talking about, and I think that he's intending for you to drift into this territory. I don't think this is accidental that he put a article before the word marriage. I don't think it's accidental. I think he's intending for you to drift over and recognize that the marriage is the church to Christ. That Christ is married to the church. He washes her with the water of the word. He, he sanctifies her by his blood. He is the husband of his bride the church, and that's why marriage is in high honor. Because marriage itself matters because it's a picture of Jesus. If marriage is not honored, then that picture is, is perverted. So marriage is honored, and the marriage bed is kept pure. Why is the marriage bed kept pure? Because it's a picture of Christ with the church. Christ does not cheat on the church. And the church is his. His bride. And oh, he is a loving, loving husband. <coughs> I just want to, I don't know, I don't know how, how to communicate that more than the picture of what Christ does. Laying his life down for the church saying, you're mine. You're, you're my church. I don't know how to communicate that other other than to say, look at the gospel. Look at what he does. Look at the book of Hosea and see Hosea take a prostitute to himself and say, you're mine and your kids, the one that that is mine, that is physically mine, I'm going to keep. And the, the two that are not mine and no mercy, that's their names. It's It's funny. Hosea names the kids not mine and no mercy. And then two chapters later, changes their names to Mercy and Mine. After spending all of his wealth 
to buy back an adulterous wife. How great is the love of our God. Marriage is to be honor. Marriage is an honor, and the marriage bed is undefiled. Why? Because it's a picture of the gospel. So we don't, we don't, we don't let it go. We don't just pass this off. If somebody goes, it's not a big deal, we go, yes, it is. It's a very big deal. This matters. When I counsel with men who are married, who are struggling, I'm being polite. They're struggling. All kinds of stuff. One of the things that will drive us to our knees together is recognizing Christ loving the church. If you are a man in this room struggling with something right now, look at Christ and the church. It will break you. Go through your word. Underline every time you see it talk about Christ and the church. And what Christ does for the church. Read it front to back. It will break you of that desire. Because it's for you. Because it's for you. Then we get to the verb. We get to the verb here. And there's a causal verb. For God will judge. That is a terrifying statement. Let's just pause for a minute and recognize how scary that is. Because we've been singing about the love of God and He's our Father. And we've been talking about the love of God and how much He loves us. How He's our husband. How we are the church. We're His bride. He's he's sacrificed all for us. how, How we love Him. God is also judge. And He is righteous and holy to the point where even the saints who have been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ fall on their face when they see him and tremble and have to be told by some random guy standing next to him, hey, you can stand up. You've read the book of Revelation? John falls down. All the prophets fall face down. The people of God, when they see God, they're his people. And they fall down on the ground. The 24 elders around the throne throw their crowns down on the ground and fall down. If you think that that's not just be, I mean, that's not just because he's great and magnificent and we love him. That's because he's terrifying. God is huge. And think about the descriptors in Scripture. The earth is his footstool. He hangs the stars on nothing. He causes mountains to rise and valleys to fall at will. He says to the water, you'll go this far and no further. He calls the behemoth to lay down at his feet like a puppy. The Leviathan is his pet. He is terrifying. And at the same time that he's terrifying, holding everything in place, causing the earth to shatter at will. He is also holding all things together and keeping you in his hands. Literally holding your molecules together. I mean that. Literally keeping you from falling apart physically. This is an amazing God. Because not only is he keeping me from falling apart physically, but he's keeping you from falling apart physically. At the same time, I can't remember to breathe when I run. You, 
you've been there. Like you run real fast and you go, and then if you've ever run with anybody else, they look at you and they go, hey, you need to get a rhythm of breathing while you run because the big gasping at the end isn't going to say like you're going to pass out. I can't remember to breathe when I run. How would I ever be able to hold my own molecules together? This is amazing. This is the God who judges all things. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Oh, our nation is in for it. It will not be pretty. It will not be happy. While we may find rejoicing, there are those around you who are going straight to judgment. And for them, the end is hell. This is important. This is important. Sexual immorality and adultery can only be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and trusting in him for salvation. That would have been a great time for somebody to walk in. Adultery! (laughs) Sexual immorality and adultery can only be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We must proclaim that blood. We must let the world know. We must. For God will judge. And that's a terrifying thought. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Again, not a verb. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, this is, again, a statement. Your life is free from the love of money. This is, this is a defining trait of Christianity. Marriage is honored. The marriage bed kept pure and undefiled. It's two defining states. The third defining state here. You are free from greed. You're free from the love of money. And he's riffing off that word phileo again. That we had at the beginning. Let brotherly love continue. And here he's going, not the love of money. Not the love of money. So this is a true statement about Christianity. That you are not greedy in your manner of life. Your life is supposed to be defined by contentment. For indeed, I have learned the secret of contentment. I've learned the secret of contentment that in want or in plenty, in suffering or in health, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That secret began back in three verses prior to that when he says, I give thanks to God in all things. What's the secret of contentment? Being grateful to God and keeping your eyes, as we've been reading in the book of Hebrews, keeping your eyes on the kingdom of God. Keeping your eyes on the kingdom of God and knowing that that's where you belong and that's your kingdom. So we are supposed to be defined by contentment. A love for Christ is to mark you, not a love for money. A love for Christ is to mark you, not a love for money. I used to hate this phrase because it's always 
Um, in businesses, we always you you analyze people and you kind of figure out what motivates them. I always hated the phrase, "Is he money motivated?" I hated that phrase because when I was young, married, I needed to eat, so I needed to make money. And so, in a way, yeah, if you gave me a job where you were going to pay me, I would do it. Because I needed food. That was was important. Starving is bad. (laughs) Christians. People ought to look at us and go, is he money motivated? And they go, no, something else. There's something else. And we can't touch it. The crazy thing about a, a Christian who's sold out for Christ and who's living his life completely in obedience to Christ. The, the crazy thing about Christians like that, like, like, I, like I believe we strive to be, the, the crazy thing about that is, is the world can't motivate you. They can't find a way to do it. And it will frustrate the mess out of them. And it's great. And you should laugh. Because they'll go, how do we get them to do what we want? And you're going to go, you're going to have to ask him. You're going to have to ask him to do it. I worked in, in traditional churches for years. And we, one of the things that we would do that I'm, I'm ashamed of, now just hear me, this is, this is not a good thing that churches do. We were trying our best. And the staff and the leadership was trying their best. And what we would do is we'd identify a person and we'd say, what motivates that person? And then we'd find that thing that motivates them, and then we'd apply it to get them to volunteer in something. That's called manipulation, by the way. If anybody ever does that, you should look at them and go, hey, that's not how Christians behave. Here at this church, we have a very, a much easier method. We just walk up to you and go, hey, we have this need. You want to do it? And often the answer is no. And then we go, but we really need it. And they go, okay. <laughs> There's no manipulation there. If you say no to us, we go, okay, we'll ask somebody else. Or it won't get done. It's that simple. There's not a lot, right? Not a lot. So Christians ought to be the type of people that you can't find the motivation beyond Christ. That ought to be our defining Character trait. Like you want to be, you you want to get a Christian to do something. Make it something that goes to the glory of Jesus, and all of a sudden they'll do it. If it's going to exalt the name of Christ, they're in. That's how we ought to be. Not money motivated, Christ motivated. And then here it says, "Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have." For He has said, and here's why you're content: For I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can, what can a man do to me. Oh, how great it is to, to look at the Father of heaven and earth, the King of all glory, and to go, I belong to him. To say, he's, he's mine, and I can, I can live this way. I can surrender everything to him. And yeah, if I don't get that thing that I think is so valuable, it's okay, because I've got him. Because I've got him and he is king. So we pray together and ask the Lord that he would give us more and more and more 
of a vision for the kingdom of God, of who he is. Because we know, unlike the world, we know that that's where our contentment lies, in knowing him. Now, I want to close by asking you simply to remember why this is so profound for you. Remember why. Because you have been forgiven. Because in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him for salvation, you have trusted in Him, repented of sin, and believed in Him, you have been forgiven. And no longer do these other things define you. No longer does a dishonorable marriage and does a, does a, undef- does a defiled bed and perversity, no longer does that define you. No longer does greed and selfish gain define you. You are no longer defined by the terms of the world. You are a saint standing before a God that no one is able to stand before. And yet, you stand. Because at some point you bowed. And the Father rescued you. Because by His sovereign hand, He has pulled you up from death and destruction and redeemed you. You have been forgiven. And why have you been forgiven? That His name would be made great and His glory would be made known.